Good morning. I'm going to be reading from Nehemiah, the very end of chapter 7. It's a strange break where the chapter starts, but the very end of Nehemiah 7, and I'll be reading through chapter 8, verse 12. Nehemiah 7, 73b to 8:12. Listen as I read the word of God. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maaseah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadna, Zechariah, and Mishalem on the left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masaiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanad, Peleah and the Levi, all the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet. For this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the word of the Lord. It's a privilege to be with you and to open up God's word this morning. I'm still relatively new at Trinity, so for those of you who don't know me, Uh, I served as a pastor and other forms of ministry for about 40 years in the area, retired a little over a year ago, 
and the Lord led us to this church, which I've told the leaders has been an oasis of spiritual joy and refreshment and renewal to me, and this morning service was not an exception to that. I'm very thankful, and uh, we started coming about a year ago to Trinity and have been members since, I think, March, so a little bit of bio in case you don't know who I am. We read in Nehemiah 8.10 those familiar words, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That sounds nice, doesn't it? Perhaps it's the kind of verse that you would display in a banner in your kitchen. It's their kids' little ditties about that, right? The joy of the Lord is my strength and so forth. But let's be brutally honest this Sunday morning. Some of you are worn out from parenting. Some of you are exhausted from Christian leadership. Some of you are weary from pacifying and placating the demands of others. And therefore, the idea that the joy of the Lord is your strength seems like a tired Christian cliché. Last Sunday, if you were here, Greg Mitchell did a great job opening up Isaiah chapter 40, where we are told that those who wait upon or hope on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. So how's it going for you this week? Have you been soaring like eagles at work, at home, in ministry? A lot of us have been running, but most of us have grown weary and we might feel like fainting. In fact, for most of us, probably September has been already a blur of activities, assignments, meetings, and meltdowns. And to top it off, things at Trinity have been challenging and stressful as we go through changes and seek to navigate the future of the church. And so you ask, Lou, how is the joy of the Lord to be my strength, our strength this morning? Well, here's my simple outline, and if you want a sermon title, it's simply, The Joy of the Lord is Your Strength. No surprise there. But just the, the three points I want to give you this morning are, number one, the joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord. Number two, the strength that the Lord gives. The joy of the Lord, the strength the Lord gives, and thirdly, the glory that God gets. The joy of the Lord, the strength that the Lord gives, and the glory that God gets. Let's start with the joy of the Lord, and if you're taking notes, I have just two subpoints under that point, okay? And the first subpoint is this, under the joy of the Lord. That we can have this joy, God wants us to have this joy, in the midst of painful opposition. We can have this joy, God wants us to have this joy, in the midst of painful opposition. When Nehemiah tells the people in chapter 8, verse 10, the joy of the Lord is your strength, he is not some prosperity doctrine preacher who loves to put happy faces on his Bible. No, for the joy of the Lord that he's talking about comes, and if we had the time, we would read chapters 1 through 7. You said that would take a long time, but remember, they listened for six hours to the word of God, and they were standing while they were doing that. 
So don't criticize a preacher if he preaches a little long some Sunday. Six hours was normal back then. But in chapters 1 through 7, what's the context that leads up to the joy of the Lord is your strength? Well, we find seven chapters of steep challenges and strong opposition to everything Nehemiah has been laboring for. Nothing has come easy in these seven chapters. Nehemiah, with God's direction and grace, has poured out his heart, his mind, and his energy into rebuilding the broken down city of Jerusalem. He has made careful plans. He's carried out those plans to rebuild the broken down walls and the burned out gates. He has striven to counteract not only external opposition that is sought to intimidate and threaten Nehemiah and his co-workers, but he's had to deal with internal complaining and fear among his own people. And on top of that, he has to convince the people who are living outside the city to come back and repopulate the city once there's walls, but the houses are burned down. Imagine a builder says, hey, come and move to our new housing project. All the houses are burned down and in rubble, but please come back in here. Brothers and sisters, it's in the midst of those challenges, hardships, and opposition that the Lord speaks through Nehemiah saying, the joy of the Lord is your strength. In other words, God is telling us that you and I can have joy in the Lord even in, especially in, the midst of painful opposition and steep challenges. That's good news. That's good news because we're weary, right? We're tired. We're worn out. And every one of us knows the opposition of Satan and sin and others. So what that means for us corporately as a church is that what Nehemiah and his people went through is similar to what we are going through as we face difficulties and challenges and perhaps opposition. And personally, that means that when you're going through physical challenges, and some of you are, when you're going through parental trials, and some of you are, Little kids, little problems. Big kids, bigger problems. When you're going through emotional struggles, you can say, this passage is for me because this is what the people were going through. They got tired moving rubble. They got tired with the intimidation and the threats. They got tired not having a warm house to just go back to. In other words, Nehemiah chapters 1 through 8 and beyond are dealing with the kind of stuff that most Christian leaders, most pastors, and most churches that are worth their weight have to face. And I speak as one who served in ministry for 45 years, and I tell anyone in ministry has a big target on their back. Pastors, elders, leaders of Christian ministries, and parents, you might feel you have a target on your back. As your kids get older, it's amazing how they blame you for everything. No matter how you raise them, you are the lightning rod for their frustrations. And so we can say, 
as the people of Israel were struggling, as Nehemiah was struggling, and these words came, the joy of the Lord is your strength, they apply to us. Do you want the joy of the Lord in the midst of your struggles, your challenges? I said, well, all of us would say yes. So again, this is not a passing feeling. This is not put on a happy face. This is a joy that comes in the midst of opposition and challenges. Second sub-point under the joy of the Lord is we can experience this joy. We can experience this joy by engaging with God in his word. We can experience this joy by engaging with God in his word. And that just sounds like, oh yeah, read your Bible and you'll have joy. No, no, no. You see, the joy of the Lord is not some fleeting feeling that you might have because for once you might have had a good sleep last night. Or maybe you came this morning and you said, oh good, they're playing all my favorite songs and hymns at Trinity today. Yes! That's not the joy we're talking about here. No, again, look at the context of chapter 8, verses 1 to 12. Nehemiah 8, 1 to 12. The people gathered and they got up early in the morning. They're there as the sun rises on the city. And they're there listening intently to God's word being read and explained to them. By the way, there were no overheads. There were no PowerPoints. There were no handouts. They listened attentively to God's word as it was read and explained and applied to their life. But not only did they pay attention to God's word, more than that, the scriptures tell us they were fully engaged by the word of God. They were totally engrossed in what God was saying to them in his holy word. Look at verse 5 of chapter 8. As Ezra opens God's word, the people stand up. Now, you know, couldn't we just sit? It's going to be a long service. They stood up because they were so moved by what they were hearing. And by the way, we're not told where in God's word it was being read, but perhaps it could have, it's somewhere probably in the Mosaic Law, the first five books of the Bible, and perhaps it was even the Ten Commandments, but starting with, our God is a covenant God. He is faithful, and he's calling us to worship only him and to not have idols and to put away all the things that clog up our lives. The words were challenging, comforting. They were convicting, I'm sure. And so they stand up. Verse 6, when Ezra praised the Lord, what did the people do? All the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. By the way, a preacher will never... Uh, be ashamed or want you not to say amen and so forth. Now, sometimes there's an amen Charlie in a church who says amen, even during announcements. We're not talking about that. But, you know, if you want a better preacher from anyone, be engaged and respond. Amen. Yes, O Lord, and so forth. We need that. We need to know that people are awake out there. And then it says, they bow down and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. So one moment they're standing up, they're raising their hands, they're saying, amen, God's word is true, God is good. And then they're convicted of their sin and they fall to the ground. It's not a carpet there, by the way. It was dust, it was dirt, there were rocks. 
they're prostrating themselves before the Lord, saying, Lord, we are sinners and you are holy. Look at verse 8. It says the Levites provided understanding in smaller groups. You know, I was thinking about skipping reading the names of all those guys because it would have been a lot easier. But, you know, if that was your son or nephew, you'd want the name read, right? And God says, I'm going to put it in the word. Ezra was important. Nehemiah was important. But what those people were, were the community group leaders. They said, let's gather around in smaller groups and we'll explain, interpret, and apply what you're hearing. And so twice it says in chapter 8, the men, the women, and all who could understand. I guess there was childcare. Those who couldn't went off to the nursery somewhere. But all who could understand... So you had not only this emotional response of, yes, Lord, amen, bowing down, but every now and then they probably broke up into smaller groups and the Levites and others said, do you understand what's being said? Do you realize the implications for this? Again, engaging them. They're engrossed fully in the word of God and what it means to them. Verse 9, all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the Lord. So we see that They are engaged with God's word. And I don't know if you're engaged right now. I know it's so easy to think about what's happening, be tired and so forth. But there are times I sit there and I said, this is the word of the Lord. We have had the privilege when we lived in the Middle East to visit Mount Sinai. And at the base of Mount Sinai there, uh, where Moses met with God, is St. Catherine's Monastery. And within the enclosure there is the place, supposedly, of the burning bush. And can you imagine being Moses, and God appears in a burning bush, and he says, take off your sandals, Moses, for this is holy ground. I wonder if we all should take off our, our sneakers and shoes, but just in some way say, when we are entering into worship, when we are hearing the word of God, this is holy ground. This is awesome. And I need to be fully engaged. Oh, Lord, help me in this. We might say it was a Hebrews 4.12 kind of engagement where the word of God that morning was living and active. The word of God pierced their hearts and their minds and their consciences like a sharp, double-edged sword, judging their thoughts and their attitudes. Do you have that experience from time to time where Josh or John or Greg or somebody's preaching and you are convicted as if somebody took a sword and went right through you, that's being engaged with the word of God. That's what was happening for six hours that morning. And here's what I'm leading up to. I would suggest to you that it was this full engagement with the Lord in his word that gave the people the energizing core of their joy. I'll repeat that. It was this full engagement with the Lord through his word that gave the people this energizing core of their joy. It wasn't just, yeah, let's read a Bible, let's just hear a sermon. God was dealing with them. God was speaking to their heart. He was convicting, comforting them, instructing them, rebuking them. He was showing more of his glory to them. And they were bowing down, raising their hands, saying amen. They were weeping. They were engaged fully with God's word. And that's what their joy was. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. It says, 
After a six-hour service, they say, go home, get some refreshments, and rejoice. The people rejoiced greatly. NIV says, they celebrated with great joy. Why? Verse 12 says, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They responded with a celebration of joy because they understood the word of the Lord and what God was doing in their lives and saying to them, You know, their spiritual lives at that point were not being empowered by two weak AAA batteries. They were plugged into a spiritual nuclear reactor at that point. I mean, they were engaged. The Spirit of God was using His Word to show who God was. And this needs to be the cry of our heart. Lord, I want to know who you are. I want to see your Word in such a way that it results in having a deep, abiding joy in the midst of challenges, hardships, and oppositions. This joy was energizing and deep. It was invigorating and strengthening. It was the kind of joy, and I know some of you have just been to a wedding or some celebration in the last few weeks. Next week, we're going to be going to the wedding of a nephew. We're going to be celebrating. Think of the best wedding and the best wedding celebration or reception you've ever gone to. And everyone is having a great time. There's great food and drink and music and dancing and celebration. That's the kind of joy that these people are experiencing. People were still opposed to them outside the walls. Their homes were not fully rebuilt. They knew the the sins of their own life and of their ancestors. But Nehemiah says to them, let this joy be your strength. Let the word of God feed you and invigorate you and energize you in such a way that in the spite of opposition, you can celebrate and say, God is good. As we've been doing this morning with the songs we've been singing. Hallelujah. My friends, is that the joy that you desire this morning? Well, let's move on. Secondly, the strength that the Lord gives. The strength that the Lord gives. What does this strength look like? Does it mean those who are fully engaged with the Word of God are physically strong? Emotionally robust? Spiritually resilient? Able to move faster than a speeding bullet? Uh, locomotive, leap over tall buildings, and so forth? Does it mean we are spiritual supermen and spiritual wonder women? No. Does it mean that Christian leaders will be able to take the worst possible criticism from their flocks, or that parents will have heavy-duty shock absorbers to deal with the sorrows and trials their children might put them through? Not exactly. What is meant by this strength that the Lord gives? It's very interesting. This word for strength is not how many pounds you can bench press. It's not how strong your character is. Rather, the Hebrew word means a place of refuge. A place of refuge. A stronghold. A castle. A fortress that you flee to And once you get behind the drawbridge and inside, you are safe. That's the kind of strength it's talking about. It could be translated a defense, a fortress, a a stronghold. 
And therefore, the joy of the Lord does not promise us that we will just always be on top of things and we'll have a great smile and we'll say, oh, praise the Lord, brother, it's always great. No. Rather, this joy compels us to run to God for help as our security. This joy of the Lord is compelling us. It finds its foundation in running to God for help as our security. As Martin Luther put it famously, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he admit the flood of mortal ills prevailing. It's a strength where we collapse upon Jesus and go to him for being our stronghold and refuge in the midst of opposition. Perhaps you're thinking of a similar New Testament passage, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's a great verse, isn't it? Well, let me tell you my personal interaction with that verse. In 1985, Lynn and I went to Jordan in the Middle East. We felt God for many years calling us to be career missionaries and share the gospel among the people of that area. And so we went to an Arabic language school run by Christians. And the first verse that we learned in Arabic was Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The second verse we learned was Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. I have a feeling the director of the school knew many of us as adults trying to learn Arabic would be very discouraged, think we couldn't do it, and so he said, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, and remember to rejoice always. I had the worst year of my life. (laughs) I had studied Latin, Greek, Hebrew, German, okay, Arabic, right? But now I had to listen to people speak it. And they didn't have bubbles over their heads saying what it was. I could memorize words, but I was terrible in listening and deciding. What was that first word they said? And by then they were on the next sentence. I was miserable. It was a tough year, tough two years, and so forth. But what I learned in the long run was that God said, I'm going to show you how weak you are and how you have to run to me as your stronghold and refuge so that I will be your joy and I will be your strength. And I think the lessons he began teaching me almost 40 years ago are bearing fruit now in my life. If I knew what I was going to go through, I don't know if I would have signed up for it. But God says, the joy of the Lord will be your strength Not immediately, but I will be your stronghold, your fortress, your defense as you find what I do in you, knocking out the props under you and making you totally dependent upon me. It's in your weakness that you will find my strength and my joy. Let me give you a picture of what this strength looks like. Imagine you are a small child playing in your yard, very contented, and all of a sudden you see this large, ferocious pit bull running towards you, no leash, no one, no owner, no master. 
He's barking loudly and he's closing in on your face and you are terrified out of your mind. The dog at that point is as tall as you are as a small child. And just as the pit bull seems like he's going to take a chomp out of your neck, you feel these arms around you, lifting you up off the ground, embracing you. It's your father who has seen the danger and has come and rescued you. And as you're in your father's arms at that point, you are safe. You, his strength of your father's arms becomes your security and your joy. You're sweating, you're breathing rapidly, but you're saying, I am safe because my father's arms are holding me up and protecting me. That's the joy of the Lord being my strength. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is a picture of what our Heavenly Father does for us as we cast ourselves upon Him, as we believe His promises, as we rely on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the empty tomb to save us and rescue us and to adopt us as His children. It's not that we have strength in ourselves, but just as the Father picks up that child and that's where the strength is. So... Our strength is in the Lord. And so as Nehemiah offered to the weary believers of Jerusalem a refuge for their souls, the joy of the Lord is your strength. As he offered that, so the Lord Jesus, that great lover of our soul, says to us, come to me, come to me, you who are wearied and burdened, and I will give you rest. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We sometimes use that evangelistically, come to Jesus, and it's true. He will give you the rest you need, but each of us need that day by day. I need to find my rest in the strong arms of Jesus that hold me and rescue me and keep me, and that's where my joy is. That's where my strength is. Or as the hymn writer Charles Wesley put it, other refuge have I none. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, ah, leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of your wing. That's what it means that the joy of the Lord is our strength And Jesus wants you to have that as you flee to him for being your refuge. But let me move thirdly to the glory that God deserves. The glory that God deserves. The fact that the joy of the Lord is our strength is true. It is comforting. We need to flee there. But there's a bigger and more glorious picture behind it. Namely, the glory and honor that the Lord gets through the process of us depending on him to be our joy and our strength. Consider this. Why did Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to the king, talk about a cushy position in the royal kingdom with many pensions and benefits, I'm sure, why does he leave all that and he travels 800 miles to the burned-out backwater ruins of Jerusalem? 
Well, you answer, he felt compassion for his fellow countrymen, right? He heard the city was in ruins. He said, something's got to be done about this. Just like you're moved when you see uh, an earthquake or different things happening. And so, yes, that moved Nehemiah. But there was a bigger reason why he went and why he endured all this opposition and hardship. It was because he had a zeal for the Lord's glory. Theologian James Hamilton put it this way, the point of Nehemiah traveling to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls was his zeal, his energy for God's glory. Why? Because Jerusalem was God's special and holy city. It lay in ruins and in shame. And Nehemiah said, we need to remove the reproach and shame of the city because it bears the name of the Lord. Can I give you an analogy? for that. Imagine you are a wonderfully loving, committed, married couple, and you love your wife as I do my dear wife. And as a husband, you have to go away. Maybe it's a mission, maybe it's work, and so forth. And while you're away, maybe it's a month or two, rumors start spreading that your wife has been seeing other men, that she's been unfaithful, and you know you know she's not been. And when you come back, what do you want to do? You want to make sure her reputation is intact. You want to put an end to the slander. You want to honor your wife's name and her reputation. And so you will speak and pray and do what's necessary so that her name is not in the gutter. That's what Nehemiah is doing. He said the other nations are looking at Jerusalem and say, Ha! God's holy city. Look. It's in ruins. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned. The houses are in disrepair. What kind of God cares for them? And Nehemiah is motivated. He's driven by a desire to say, let's build up those walls. Let's rebuild the gates. Let's build up the houses. And let's worship God there to show the world that our God reigns. And our God cares. And restore glory and honor to the precious name of God. By the way, brothers and sisters, whether it's missions, evangelism, loving your spouse, loving your kids, running a church, if you desire the glory of God above all else, God will bless those efforts. He will use those efforts and the joy of the Lord will be your strength. Nehemiah had a deep concern for the city and rebuilding it because the Lord's name was upon it. He wanted God's kingdom to come and his will to be done as he rebuilt the walls, as he dealt with the accusations, as he called the people back to worship him. And so we read in Nehemiah 6, verses 15 and 16. Nehemiah 6, 15 and 16. So the wall was completed in 52 days. Verse 16. When all our enemies heard about this, and they never thought it would happen. They never thought they could rebuild a wall like that. All the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. Why? Because they realized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. You see, the nations around said, God is at work here. God does care. God is getting glory. God is doing something that we thought we could stop with our intimidation and threats. And so the gospel was going out. God's name was being honored, his reputation being restored, 
as the people also felt the joy of the Lord being their strength. Do you see the two levels? On the one hand, God says, I want you to have my joy. I want you to know me as a place of refuge. And as I do that, there's something higher that's going on. It's my glory and my reputation. You know, God is often more concerned about the process of how we do things than the result. I mean, the result is going to be his anyway. But how we get there, are we saying, Lord, would you be glorified in the process, in the pain, in the opposition, in the parenting, which never stops, and so forth? Would God be glorified? And therefore, the comforting truth that the joy of the Lord is our strength is not just for us as worn-out parents. It's not just for us as struggling singles. It's not just for us as burned-out Christian leaders, though it is that. But it is for God's glory at Trinity and in our marriages and in our individual lives. God is the source and the fount of all joy. He is the strength of our life. He is our security. He is our unmovable fortress. And here's something to consider. God loves to take broken down walls and burned out gates and rebuild them in a way that he gets the glory and we and the world around us stand amazed and said, God did that. God calls you to rebuild walls. God calls you to rebuild gates. But he does so that you might see that the strength comes from him, the glory goes to him, and his grace is at work so that your life over the decades and in eternity will be a trophy of his grace. Oh, that we could just see behind the scenes just for a moment. Lord, how are you using these hard times? How are you using this opposition? But we cast ourselves and say, Lord, I run to you as my fortress, and you will be my joy. Brothers and sisters, I confess to you that there are areas of my life where I feel that God has allowed a thorn in my flesh to remain, though I have prayed again and again that God might remove it. And relationships are the hardest. Sometimes family, those closest to us, churches, I, I've had thorns in the flesh and still do. And I'm not every morning saying, the joy of the Lord is my strength, okay? I'm a fellow struggler, a pilgrim with you. But I do know that one day, he will show himself to be the glory and the lifter of our heads. And he will demonstrate that everything we have been through is to make us more like Jesus and to give glory to him among the nations. One more thing, and that is, and I borrow a bit from Pastor John Piper here. He makes the observation that the people had been weeping and grieving because of their sin. If we look ahead to chapter 9, there's this great long confession of sin for themselves. They've been unworthy, they've been wicked, their parents were unwicked, and so forth. And so, you know, if this morning uh, John had said, let's for the next half hour think about how wicked we are and grievous, you know, if we really got serious, if God showed our sins on the screen for the next half hour, there'd be a lot of weeping and grieving, right? If our inner hearts were exposed. 
But God's answer in the midst of their grief about their guilt and their shame was this. Be joyful. Take refuge in me. For I am your refuge from your grief, from your guilt, from your shame, from your weariness. Come, God says, into my joyful refuge from your sin and guilt. Come into the stronghold of God your Savior in Christ. And so here we are. We are worn out. The enemies are beseeching us over there. And over here is this castle. And it's got banners flying. And there's music in it. And there's song and dance. And God says, run to me. And leave your guilt and shame and weariness behind. And find your joy and strength in the stronghold of my love for you in Christ. That stronghold, God has built it. God has finished it. It's done at the cross and the empty tomb. And now we are just called to enter into it by saying, Lord, I am weary. I am worn out. I am not joyful. And I need to flee to you. And for some of you, that means fleeing to him for the first time and saying, my Lord, Lord, my life is a mess. You would allow me to come into your castle and be welcome to your table and to the banquet of your salvation? Could anything be better than that? And for others of us, we know we've tasted at that banquet, but we've wandered outside the gate a bit and we forget the joy and the stronghold that God is for us in Jesus Christ. May we come to him today and again and again and find that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Will Doggett will come and pray for us now. Let's go before the throne of grace. Lord, you truly are our strength. The joy that you give us is our strength. Lord, I pray that as we encounter the different obstacles in this life that keep us or pull us away from you, that we would see them for what they are and turn and run to the cross, to the salvation that is there for us. That in regardless of our circumstances or what may be going on in life or what's going on in Trinity, we would find our strength in you and in the joy of the Lord, knowing that as we come to you, we bring you glory and honor. Lord, I pray that as we go through these circumstances, that as our neighbors see us or our co-workers see us and they see us seeking to find you, And they say, well, how are you going through this difficult situation? And you say, the Lord is my strength. I find my joy in him. Lord, that we would take these circumstances that we encounter and bring them to you, that you might strengthen us, that we could bring glory to your name. Lord, the prayer of my heart is that through all these things, we would bring glory to the name of Jesus. And it's in his name I pray, amen.